Morning, everyone. Happy Fourth of July. Did anybody go to see the fireworks last night? It's pretty much how it was in the Revolutionary War. Just, just like that. Anybody here from the Israel study tour? Nope, still jet lagged. See you next week. At this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to study the Bible with me and consider the gospel of Jesus Christ for your life. And um, many different ways that we can see that through the scriptures. I've been assigned yet again a story from the Gospel of John. I don't know if you know this, a couple weeks ago I got to share from John chapter 2. It's rare in a topical, you know, kind of summer season to get a little bit of a flow going. And so uh, I'm excited. I, I mean, it's my favorite book of the Bible, so I do feel a little guilty. I could take all the John uh, passages, but just how the way the cookie crumbled. In John chapter 6. Today we have a story about free food. I did the story about free wine before. I don't know why more people aren't Christian. So we're reading this stuff, and it's like, we got free wine, we got free food. What else is there? Oh, forgiveness of sin. That's great. Even more. That's it. It's a story today about forgetful people, which is great, because I'm a very forgetful person. My wife told me three times that my childhood dog died, and I each time reacted as if I'd never heard it before. That was in the course of like two weeks. Just can't remember everything. Most of the time, forgetful people actually feel alienated because everybody looks at them like they're the only person who's ever forgot something before. You forget something, they look at you like, what's wrong with you? This story is 4,999 forgetful people. And so it's very affirming for somebody like me. I don't know if they forgot to grab the food when they were walking out of their house that day or if they forgot that they get hungry. Just Today is the day I was just going to test it and see if I was going to get hungry. Or I don't know. This is, uh, this is a bunch of forgetful people. I love these miracles. It's not to do with blind man. It's not to do with the person who's never walked before. It's not dealing with sin. Just a bunch of people forgot to bring some food. If they all... Yeah, never mind. All right. If you're all there, I'm done with my just jokes. That's all it was, was jokes. Please stand with me for the reading, um, if you will. Anyways. Jesus had just healed a guy in uh, Jerusalem who couldn't walk. And sometimes after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he performed by healing the sick. And Jesus went up the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said, Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people? He said this only to test him, for he already had in his mind what he was going to do. He was messing with him. Philip answered him, it would take more than half of you. It would take six months' wages to buy enough bread for each person to just have one bite. Another one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He was a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go with so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down 
About 5,000 men were there. Jesus took the loaves and gave thanks, distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. They had enough to eat. He said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over for those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come in the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to the mountain by himself. When the evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. and They got into the boat and set across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. Jesus hadn't joined them. A strong wind was blowing. The waters grew rough. And they rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. Jesus said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. And the next day, the crowd to stay on the opposite shore of the lake realized only one boat had been there, and that Jesus didn't get into this to the disciples, but they had gone away alone. Some of the boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got in the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus said, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. The Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, well, what, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. Amen. It's the very words of God. the fourth sign. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, John is writing an evangelistic letter, chapter 21. He says, I'm writing this so that you can read these stories and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. Put your trust in him and be saved. One of the motifs that he uses is to weave together these stories, these specific stories that he handpicks, that he thinks are going to speak to the people that he's writing to. It's a sign. That's what he calls them. What's a sign? Something that points to something else. You could come to Grand Rapids. You see a sign. Grand Rapids. It's not Grand Rapids. It's a sign. Grand Rapids is ahead. Nobody stops at the sign. We're looking ahead. This is a point to somewhere. It's important. It's like labor pains. Labor pains is not the point. The point's the baby. This is just a sign and it's coming. Imagine you're in a cave and this ray of light appears. You've been, you've been lost in total darkness. All of a sudden you see that. What happens inside of you? You start to have a little bit of hope. You start to see that light and you start to say, I can get out of here. That's the sign in John. Well, what happens is these people end up seeing that ray of light land on the cave floor. And they kind of like it. I like this light. I, like the, I didn't ever see the floor here before. 
They started to just stare at the floor. Maybe we could plant some food, have some photosynthesis. Maybe we could do something with this floor. And they get caught up in that, the sign, not the, what is the point, what is the sun, where is the light, how do we get out of here? No, it's not the point, they want, the, they want to see the floor. We can see signs, we can read these signs in John, and we can get enamored with the sign and not with the, sign, the thing that it's pointing to. That's what I want to do justice to, I want to talk about how do we not end up where these people end up, because at the end of this story, in the chapter, end of chapter 6, most of the people... Walk off. They don't see it. They don't get it. They don't want it. I don't want to be that person. I want to be what the disciples say at the end of this chapter. You're the one who has the words of eternal life. I'm not going anywhere. What's the context for this story? Well, the geographical context, they're kind of saying there is uh, the Sea of Galilee. I note that because John doesn't do a ton of stories from the Sea of Galilee. He's a couple, but it's notable. If you're familiar with the sea, uh, you can see kind of where they're going with this, right? When, they, when, when I read uh, after, the, feed, after the, the miracle, they're, they're leaving and going toward Capernaum. Okay, so if you know where that city is, you can see they're headed over to the Golan Heights area. They're hanging out um, up by Bethsaida, where some of the disciples were from, and the northeast side of this lake. It's a spring. It's a Passover. There's plenty of grass. It's beautiful. This is where, uh, this is where the people are at. It's a different context, though, in John that also sometimes gets overlooked. It's what I call the forgotten context. Seems to me that John is writing with one eye on the Jewish people and one eye on the Gentile. Seems to me that he has handpicked and selected these stories and he's a good enough writer that he's able to weave together uh, one story to hit two people at the same time. You ever seen Bad Bob Munden? The fastest gun in the world? Am I the only person that's ever seen this? You should YouTube this. He can shoot so fast, less than two one-hundredths of a second. I don't even know if that's a real number, but that's what he says. Two bullets, two targets, hits them. Looks like it's one bullet. It's a good example for John. I'm the only one that gets it, but it's still a good example. <laughs> one of these days, I bet you right now, all your iPhones just heard me say that. It's going to suggest, uh, it's going to suggest that you watch that. Thank you, NSA, or whatever, however that works. <laughs> Kayaks. No, I'm just, just testing it. Just <laughs> you get ads for them. <laughs> Tricked you. What would this read if this has something to do with the Gentile? I'm going to get to the Jewish perspective of this story, too. But what, how would this hit somebody who, was, uh, who, who, who grew up in, in a Roman household? The reason why I start to get an inkling for that is even in the first verse. When he says that they went across the Sea of Galilee and then parenthetically states, the Sea of Tiberias. <laughs> why would you say that? Nobody who's in Israel needs to know that's also Tiberias. That's the Roman name of this lake. I never say, hey, I went up the Willis Tower. Unless somebody is traveling from out of town, I would just say it's the Sears Tower. That's what it is to me. Thank you. That's also a good example. I just thought of that. Okay. 
There's a Roman reader here who wants to know. That, oh, Tiberius. There's another thing I noticed in verse 4. This might seem kind of like I'm doing a little too much minutia, but I'm four wing five. This makes sense to me. Why is the wording in verse 4 say the Jewish Passover festival? Why, why would you say that? That's a little redundant. If you're just speaking to uh, you know, an American, why would I say, hey, this week we, settle, we, we, we celebrate the American holiday of the Independence Day? You don't always say that. You just say, hey, we're the 4th of July. Okay, but if you're talking to somebody from Pakistan or whatever, they're over here, we're celebrating the American holiday of the 4th of July. I think he's got his mindset on two different people right now. What does this mean to the Greek? What does this mean to the Roman? Well, some thoughts that I had on this were, were you know, just go with me here. I grew up in a Roman household. My life is saturated and inundated with, with idolatry. It's impossible for me to overstate the amount of idolatry that was in the everyday life of a typical person in the Roman Empire. If I said the words, everywhere, all the time, it's not an overstatement. Everywhere. It's, it's all the time. It's in the sports, health, fitness. You got God. You got to figure out how to please that God. You got to sacrifice and do everything. You get blessed and you can have the, the health that you need. Politics, economics. You got you to make sure you get the gods are happy with you. You don't want to go to war. You want to keep it peaceful. So we got to sacrifice and do our rituals and, and make sure that they're happy. Family, of course, family. We need to have. Kids, we need to be fertile. We need to have lots of kids that are healthy and can keep our way of life going and can make sure that we're uh, okay. Doing what? Agriculture. Last but not least, of course, there are gods for agriculture. Let me introduce you to one. Demeter. Demeter is the goddess of grain and of the harvest. As much as food is connected to life, you don't have any food. You don't have any life. Okay, she is also connected to the cycles of life, the seasons. Demeter has some peculiar worship practices. For example, for, for annual festival, you go in a white robe. You stand beneath this metal grate, and a bowl is slaughtered above you. You're washed. Your sins are washed away in the blood of the bowl. You drink it. You eat it. You see where I'm going with this. Verse 53, 54, if you read ahead. What would it mean to a Roman to hear the Christ say, Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. Demeter has a ritual bread. It's called living bread. Bread of life. Demeter's Roman name is Sirius. It's where we get the word cereal from. Our breakfast food. American name, Cinnabonus. You see, uh, <laughs> the god of the glutton. It's <laughs> Krispy Kremus. She, um, you gotta make her happy. Don't make her mad. You gotta please her. You gotta sacrifice her. You gotta do everything that you can to make sure you get rain. Make sure you get the season. The crops are going to grow. We need this country. We need our family to be strong, not vulnerable. We need to be strong, not weak. We don't want to be attacked and then have to rebuild our life because we were in a famine. We're always one step, one bad decision away from a famine. We've got to please the gods. 
If you don't do that, let's say, okay, yeah, you go to college, you want to be an atheist, great. Now you're a threat to everybody. It's not like it is here nowadays. You, you want to make the gods mad. You're threatening our way of life. You become somebody that we all, you have a problem with all of us. Now imagine this story being written probably in Ephesus by the Apostle John. Starts to circulate. You're invited to church. You've been worshiping Demeter your whole life. You've been in this game your whole life of trying to please the gods just to make sure you're okay. And all of a sudden, you get this guy named Jesus who says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. He takes sacrifice from this poor child. Not the best, not the wealthiest, not the most. This little bread and this little fish. He benevolently feeds thousands of people who didn't deserve it. Not mad at them, not angry with them, not condescending towards them. He just did it out of his own uh, goodness. If I'm Roman, if I'm hearing this, I start thinking, okay, I'm listening. I never heard of a God who says you can bring your weakness to me. I'll work with that. I've never heard of a God who says that I'll work with these two little, these five little pieces of toast. That means something to me. I don't, I don't know. I guess sometimes we do want to bring God our strength. Bring God our, our, our might. Well, I serve a God I can see in the scripture who said to me, I'm willing to work with you. You've got nothing to bring. What, is, what does Andrew say? What well, as good as this with all so many people? Well, who can, this can't do anything. So I can work with that. Bring to, bring to me your weakness. John's got him right where he wants him. The thing is, they're a turning point here. Okay, this isn't good enough. It's not good enough to just say, okay, now you've got a new Demeter. You've got a new Sirius. You replace Demeter with Jesus, and now you have another idol. In the midst of all your other idols is Jesus. He's not going to do that. We've got to move this forwards. The funny thing is, when we look at the Jewish perspective of this story, they all end up in a similar place. Let me pause that and show you. It's a little bit easier to see. How do the Jewish people respond to this story? Remember in verse 15, the people saw the sign. They said, surely this is the prophet. What does that mean? The prophet. When they see all this, they see Moses. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18. There will be a, when the Messiah comes, there will be a one who's like a prophet like Moses. No surprise that they see Moses in this. What's the season that they're in? They're all getting ready. Maybe that's why they're all walking around out there. They're all getting ready to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you'll see this all through the Gospels. When we got Passover stories, they're, they're always very emotional people. But I'm not, I'm not going to go there just yet. The, the, the reason why I think they see Moses is all over this story. I mean, imagine you're praying Moses. You're reading Moses. You're singing Moses. You're getting ready to travel for the Passover to celebrate this redemption that, uh, of, of Israel getting released from Egypt and from Pharaoh. It's on your mind. You see this guy cross over the water. Okay? And then 
He miraculously provides bread in the wilderness for the children of Israel. And then he tests Philip. He's putting them to the test. Oh, I brought you out into the wilderness so that I could test you. Five loaves of bread, five books of Moses, two fish, ten commandments are on two tablets, twelve baskets full of bread. This is Moses, you guys. It's obvious. Let's, the prophet's here. Now why, by, why do they want to make him king? Well, this is very, very logical. They're, they're obligated to celebrate the Passover by their religion. But can you imagine celebrating the Passover and not being a free country? If next year, if the course of next year, between now and next 4th of July, Canada invades America. Go with me here. Maybe. And uh, they take over. They win. They're in charge of us. And we still celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, then the next, how, how many years do you think that's going to last? Before we all decide, no, I'm not going to do another firework until we're free. I'm not going to do it. We're going to rally up the Michigan militia. We're going to get everybody together, and we're going to go do something about it. We're going to challenge them. I don't speak French, but we're going to do it. <laughs> How long do you think it will last? Now, our jingoism or whatever is not even close to the zealotry of, from what I can tell, the people of Israel in that day. They're ready to say to Rome, I dare you, cross this line. They want to have a king. They want to, 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 to become free. And they're celebrating the greatest act of God's redemption, of him rescuing them. They have all the means necessary to, to say, all we, need is, all we need is Moses. We could do this. My question is, why is it that when they recognize Jesus for who he is as the Messiah, does he walk away? Seems kind of funny, doesn't it? I mean... I recognize Jesus as the king. We sing about it. We pray about it. He is the king. It's who he is. They want to make him king. He walks away. Or he confronts them. They are in the exact paradigm as somebody who is serving a pagan Roman God. Because they don't want Jesus to be king. They want anyone to be king. They don't care if it's Jesus or if it's Judas or if it's whoever. They, don't, they want someone to be king, and it would be very helpful if he could just magically produce bread. I mean, it's a great person to be putting in charge of your country, somebody that when you're all in battle and you're surrounded by the Roman legion, you're inside, of, you still got food. This is a very helpful skill to have. Of course, let's make this guy our king. We at least will always have food. I don't care if it's Jesus. When Jesus starts to smell that people are treating him the same, in the same paradigm as we treat an idol, he walks away. He won't tolerate this. The paradigm of an idol is just to say, can you give me something what I want? I mean, if you want to test your life right now, go down the list of things that matter to you and ask yourself, would I prefer the gift without the giver? Is this what I'm, just, this is what I'm going for, the gift? And by any means possible, I'll, I'll go through whoever to get what I want. 
This is how idolatry works. It doesn't matter what the name is. It doesn't matter what the trinket is. Just give me what I want. The bread of Demeter is still being offered to Americans, even if we have this higher consciousness and, and are above religion and above idolatry. The bread is still on the table. And the bread of Demeter is poison, does not multiply, will continue to shrink, and will, act, will make you more and more exhausted and tired. You're going to be sick of it. Are you sick of it? Sure, maybe it's not just the harvest. Maybe we don't watch the corn grow. But how many of you watch the stocks grow? We serve gods in America that promise things for our future. That's what we're all about. We, we don't want to anger those gods. Whew. Do not make the God of retirement mad. You got to do the right thing, the sacrifices, and do the right stuff in order to make that God happy with you so that you can be blessed and have the thing that you want in the end, in the end of your life or whatever. Don't make the God of how this country works mad. No, we got to, don't mess with that system. And now all of a sudden, we start to look a lot like the ancients. And anybody that starts to come in and say, it's, you got it backwards, becomes a threat. Start to wonder how we would treat Jesus. He came in and said, you know what, the bread you guys are, are eating, it's not the bread of life. We got to get past just getting gifts from the giver and actually get to the giver. This is why I think, it's my opinion, this is why I think this walking on water story is in the middle of this chapter. Anybody else notice that's kind of an odd placement as a writer? Why would you do that? If you read verse 15, they want to make a king by force. And then you went to verse 25, they found him. We had this debate in the synagogue. You don't miss anything. Flows really nice. You could get the, you could get the thought. All of a sudden, we have this, this vague story where there's no Peter walking on water. There's no peace be still. There's not a lot of details. And it just abruptly ends. Verse 21, they took him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached him. Done. What are you doing? I wonder if John has decided to do something um, that kind of ups the ante for the tension or uh, uh, creates more significance and also paints a picture with this story. Where are the people on this side of the story? They just want the bread. They don't want, they don't want the bread giver. They don't want the the true bread. And then we have this story that's like, okay, this is getting a little more important. It's not just missing a meal. Okay, the bread story was great, but we're all gluten-free. It's fine. We're not going to have, we don't need the meal. People skip meals all the time. It's not life or death. But now they're out in the boat, and this is life or death. Storm's coming. They can't figure this out. They've been rowing for hours. Water's coming in, and they're afraid. This is serious. So I want you to think. What's a serious, life or death, frightening thing to you? Here's the picture. Jesus walks out there. He stands outside of the boat. And that's verse 17, uh, 21. They're willing to take him in. And immediately they reach the shore. Can't say it any more clear than that. 
It's so obvious that it's just even hard to, it's hard to see. He gets in. Him. This is not a parallel miracle. It's progressing of a thought. If it was parallel, it would read like this. They realized they only had one life jacket. Jesus took it and prayed. And all of a sudden, there were 13 life jackets. And they all were rescued by the life jacket giver. That's a parallel. To, pro to progress the thought, there's no life jackets. He gets into the boat. He, the person, gets in. They let him in. And immediately, they're saved. You can preach that. What's going on? That's your, what are you afraid of right now? Finances, total chaos. Your health, chaos. Your family, you just got a phone call. Totally throws your life uh, out of order. Jesus might as well be miles away. There's tons of chaos in between you and him. This Jesus says, I'm going to walk out there. I'm going to meet you there. Nothing's going to be in between you and me. I'm going to stand there until you let me in. You let the Prince of Peace onto the boat. What's going to happen? doesn't matter. We don't have the end of this. Immediately, it's better. Put the Prince of Peace on the boat. Invite him in to your chaos, to your fearful situation, to what you just say. When's the last time you said, Jesus, I'm bringing you into this? You're too long. You've been standing outside, waving at me from the waves, saying, don't be afraid. It's just me. Bring him into the boat, and immediately, it's better. It's going to be, it's not... I'm not saying you're going to be, the boat's not going to sink. It might still sink, but guess what? He is with you. And that means the world. John wants this to move beyond just merely somebody that gives a physical piece of bread. He wants to move this farther to say, he's not just here to bring bread. He's here to be, he's here to be the bread. He's here to be the, the, the answer to your problem. Him. Not just a social justice person that's just trying to solve problems merely for today, but somebody that's trying to solve a problem forever, deep down inside of all of us. You let them in. If you're not buying that, I'm selling it pretty hard, but if you're not buying that, he pretty much comes out and says it in the verses to follow. They found him on the other side. They said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he said, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you got it. You didn't get it. You didn't see the sign. You're looking for me because you had the bread. You're hungry, and that's what you want. You don't want me. You're paying attention. To, you're still looking at that ray of light in the cave, thinking this is a great ray. You're paying attention to the wrong thing. You should be looking at me. But he says, you guys have been seeking after bread that's just... It's perishable. You should be seeking after bread, working for bread that leads to eternal life. I love it when Jesus slides in a little heresy just to catch you, just to make sure you're paying attention. Work, he says, you're working for bread that perishes. You should work for bread uh, that leads to eternal life. And we're like, wait a minute. I'm not working for my eternal life, Jesus. What are you talking about? They ask him. They ask him a clarifying question. That's nice of them. Verse 28. What must we do to do the work that God requires? One of my all-time favorite verses is Jesus' response, John 6, 29. 
The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. You want work? It's the hardest work you're ever going to do. Of course we want him to say something else. We want to say and do this, build up this ego, build up this uh, achievement, this accomplishment, and then you'll be welcomed into my kingdom. He says, you want work? This is the work. Believe in the one that God sent. You got to believe. You know, your work is to not work. Your work is to not work. It's to believe and to trust him that he is the bread of life, that he is the answer. He is the source of life for you. That's your work. That's your marching orders. To look in the mirror and to tell yourself what you believe and to say, my hard work is going to be to be consistent with what I believe. To be consistent with who I see God uh, telling me who I am. That's my work, and it's difficult to do. It's difficult to look at somebody across from you and say, I believe that you're a child of God. I'm going to treat you like that. I'm not going to take from you. Or to look at them and say, I don't want you to, to give me any affirmation necessary. I don't need it. That's hard. We want to demand people treat us in a way that we believe we should be treated. But your work is to say, I don't need that. I have a belief. And my belief is much stronger than any of this stuff out here. My belief is Jesus Christ died for me because he loves me. He welcomed me into his family. And that's enough for me. That's my work. I'm a type of person, read Revelation 19, you know, and gets just terror. I looked and I saw thrones. And books were open. And anybody whose name wasn't written in the book got into trouble. And everybody who ever lived was there. What does it say? They were judged according to their work. A same question that they just asked comes up in mind. Well, work. What works do I got to do? What if I told you you were judged according to your work and the work was, did you believe? I think Brandon Manning said it back in the day. He said, I believe that we're going to be asked one question when we arrive in the age to come. And it's, did you believe that I loved you? What if I told you in the midst of all this noise in our culture, all the things being preached at us and all the ads that want to, 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 to tell us, buy me, get me, and you'll be happy, and all the stuff that's around us, that the thing that really matters about your relationship with Christ is do you believe that he loves you or not? All of the theology that we can figure out, all of the stuff and philosophy that we can run around in, do you believe that he loves you? he does you take that bread in it's the bread of life and that'll sustain your soul and that'll continue to multiply even though it might seem like a meager five loaves or two fish that bread's going to multiply to your family it's going to feed people in your life around you in your sphere of influence at your workplace there's going to be enough bread coming out of you coming out of your ears that there, there's going to be 12 baskets full we don't even know where the baskets came from. They're going to be full, though. You believe that he loves you. It's something to think about. Let's just pray think through it.
Father in heaven, if any of us uh, have been treating you like an idol, treating your son like an idol, just to sort of get to heaven or get what we need, get the, get the life that we want, get the stuff that we want. Pray that you convict us to go beyond your blessing, go beyond your gift to, to the actual person. We can just sort of see all that fade and say, you're, you're who we want. You're our greatest companion. You're our treasure. Eternal life is this, to know the Son. There's any of us here who, have, who are in a, f- a fearful situation, chaos, boats sinking. The last thing that we want to do is invite you onto the boat. I just pray that you would beckon them from the side of the boat and you would knock on that and say, just let me in. Just let the Prince of Peace on the boat and see what happens. See the peace that surpasses understanding, guarding your heart and mind. We're all afraid of this world and wars and rumors of wars, and we just want to invite you in. We invite you into our context and culture. Come on in, Jesus. You are who we want, who we want. If any of us have been just seeking out the bread that perishes, give us permission. To not just seek an era like Moses where bread, physical bread is just everywhere and that we're good for the day. But to see the bread of life falling from heaven every day that says, take me in and you'll be good forever. You proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of this is your work. To just stand there and believe that I'm the bread of life falling down for you. So proud of you, Jesus. We thank you for being this for us. Your body is the bread. We thank you. Amen.